We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Fock and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome nationally recognized physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher. She'll have an update on the AMA CPT codebook. Former president and CEO of Behema, Rose Dunn, returns with part two of her series on how HIM professionals can enhance physician practices in the outpatient environment. Former CMS career professional and well-known healthcare IT authority, Stanley Nockhamson, reports the latest regulatory news from Washington. And Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. We're all here and ready to go. And coming to the plate, a man who never swings at a bad pitch, the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the 460th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. Erica, last week was a big week in healthcare. Well, good morning. And how how is that, Chuck? Well, last week, CMS released the 2022 Inpatient Perspective Payment System proposed rule. I know it well, and Stanley Nackhamson will report on the rule and the changes, thank goodness. Yes, he is. But one of the surprises is that CMS backed off on that requirement that hospitals had to post their negotiated rates with Medicare Advantage plans. That's right. And the proposed rule would also require hospitals to report vaccinations among hospital staff. Yes, it does. And, you know, I was thinking about you when I read about hospitals having to report their vaccination among hospital staff because you've become kind of a vaccine maven of sorts. Uh, Yes. Well, you know that vaccinations are my passion. Indeed. And speaking of mavens, Terry Fletcher joins us to report our lead story this morning on the CPT errata that was recently published by the American Medical Association, the AMA. That's right. And just for those of you who might not know what mavens means, it means expert. (laughs) There are some important clarifications in the new 2021 CPT errata and technical corrections. Our friend Rose Dunn returns to the broadcast this morning with part two in our two-part series on how him professionals can use their existing skill sets to enhance data integrity and, of course, the image of HIM. And you have a talk back. What's on your mind today? Well, Shannon DeConda's segment last week triggered my talk back on providers having to tell the story. I love that. Looking forward, as always, to your talk back. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, Xavier Becerra, announced commitments from national organizations to support black American outreach and enrollment efforts during the special enrollment period made available by healthcare.gov by President Biden due to the COVID-19 public health emergency. Black Americans currently represent roughly 13% of the U.S. population, but only 16% of the uninsured. As part of Black American Week action, April 25th through May 1st, HHS and its partnership organizations will continue to combine social media efforts to inform Black American consumers and spur enrollment in affordable, quality health plans through healthcare.gov. An estimated 66% of Black American uninsured adults may now have access to zero premium plans, and 76% may be able to find a low premium plan as a result of the expanded coverage. 
Black Americans are currently ta- current, clearly taking advantage of the current special enrollment period to access quality health care coverage, said Secretary Becerra, but we still have a lot of work to do. We are building on encouraging momentum and earnestly learning with key national partners serving black communities. We are leveraging their expertise and networks to promote enrollment and quality affordable health insurance coverage through this SEP. Healthcare is now more affordable and access is access easier forever for people that need a healthcare plan that best fits the individual or family's healthcare needs. Well, one thing I did in evaluating Mr. Becerra's comments was to look at the diversity among the people that have been appointed as directors of the Department of Health and Human Services. While Jocelyn Elders was the first black female Surgeon General in 1993, we've seen little representation by African Americans at HHS itself. In that same year, David Satcher was also named as the head of the CDC. Unfortunately, HHS leadership has just not kept uh, up with the changes and the opportunities to show uh, to show African American faces within within the department, and we think that that has impacted the the uh, enrollment levels among African Americans. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's May fourth. Today, the death toll for the deadly coronavirus now stands at five hundred and seventy-seven thousand. You're listening to Talk Ten Tuesday. Stand by. In 2021, a great deal of risk stems from the implementation of new CPT coding rules for office and other outpatient E&M visits. This has spawned widespread confusion, but also how to support code assignments with physician documentation that precisely captures the patient encounter. During an upcoming webcast, nationally recognized healthcare professional coding and auditing expert Terry Fletcher will address general and spinal orthopedic services. In her presentation, you'll get proven strategies, tips, and tools to help you protect a major revenue source. Register now to attend Auditing E&M Outpatient Visits in 2021, General and Spinal Orthopedics. That webcast is Thursday, May 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Now is the time for Reg Watch featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockerson. Good morning, Stanley. Hey, a lot of news coming out of Washington these days, including last week's release of the 2022 IPPS proposed rules. So what do we need to know? Ah, good morning, Chuck. Yes, that is a big event, as it is every year. On the 27th, CMS did issue its annual inpatient prospective payment system and long-term care hospital rate proposed rule. This rule proposes payment rates, quality measures, reporting, and other policy updates to take effect for fiscal year 2022, which begins on October 1st. The proposed increase in payments rates for hospitals paid under the inpatient system that successfully participate in the hospital inpatient quality reporting program and are meaningful electronic health record users is about 2.8%. Hospitals may be subject to other payment adjustments under the IPPS, including payment reductions for excess readmissions under the hospital readmissions reduction programs, payment reductions for the worst performing quartile under the hospital acquired condition reduction program, and upward and downward adjustments under the hospital value-based purchasing program. CMS generally uses the latest available hospital utilization data to help set payment rates. However, the agency believes that the latest data from fiscal year 2020 would be non-representative due to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
CMS is proposing to use the fiscal year 2019 data from prior to the epidemic to approximate the expected FY 2022 inpatient hospital utilization. They are seeking comments on this plus the use of fiscal year 2020 data. As part of the effort to close the healthcare equity gap, CMS is proposing to distribute an additional 1,000 new Medicare-funded medical residency positions to train physicians. These slots will be allocated to qualifying hospitals as specified by recent legislation, including those located in rural areas and those serving areas with a shortage of healthcare professionals. The 1,000 new slots will be phased in at no more than 200 per year beginning in fiscal year 2023. CMS estimates that this additional funding will total approximately $1.8 billion from fiscal year 2023 through fiscal year 2031. CMS is proposing to prioritize applications from qualifying hospitals that serve geographic areas and underserved populations with the greatest need. To further health equity efforts, in the proposed rule, CMS is seeking stakeholder input via a request for information on ideas to revise several related CMS programs to make reporting of health disparities based on social risk factors and race and ethnicity more comprehensive and actionable for hospitals, providers, and patients. CMS is seeking comment from stakeholders on future potential additional stratification of quality measure results by race, Medicare, Medicaid dual eligible status, disability status, and socioeconomic status. CMS is also proposing to repeal a previous requirement that a hospital report on their Medicare cost report the median payer-specific negotiated charge that the hospital has negotiated with all of its MA organizational payments by MSDRG for cost reporting periods ending on or after January 1st, 2021. CMS estimates this will reduce administrative burden on hospitals by a total of 64,000 hours. CMS is also proposing to repeal the market-based MSDRG relative weight methodology that was adopted effective for fiscal year 2024 and to continue using existing cost-based relative weight methodology to set Medicare payment rates for inpatient stays for fiscal year 2024 and beyond. CMS is also proposing changes to certain quality measures, adding some and deleting others. CMS is also proposing changes to the interoperability program. They're they're requiring a reporting of yes, basically requiring hospitals to make sure they report on public health and clinical data exchange in syndromic surveillance reporting, immunization registry reporting, electronic case reporting, and electronic reportable laboratory results reporting. Now, for long-term care hospitals, CMS expects these payments to increase by approximately 1.4% or $52 million in fiscal year 2022. CMS is also proposing to facilitate more accurate payment of Medicare's share of organ acquisition costs by collecting data from transplant hospitals to calculate this share and to ensure Medicare payment at reasonable cost by requiring donor community, not transplant hospitals, to bill organ procuring organizations customary charges that are reduced to costs in line with Medicare reasonable cost principles. Comments on all of these are due by June 28th. Dr. Reamer, back to you. Thank you, Stanley. If only your summation absolved me from having to read it myself. I do feel the duty to put my own comments in. Oh, well. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. 
Stanley is the founder of Notcomson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you very much for an excellent report. Rose Dunn returns to the broadcast this morning with part two of her two-part series on how HIM professionals can use their existing skill sets to enhance data, integrity, and the image of HIM. Here now is our good friend Rose Dunn. Good morning, Rose. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be back for this second part. You know, last week we talked about taking over the coding for our physician practices with hopefully having increased physician practice revenue and attacking denials with accurate and comprehensive coding. This time we're going to talk about opportunities to leverage our HIM staff and reduce expense. Because of the financial drain that every facility experienced during the pandemic, every facility CFO is doing a proctoscopy on staff levels in every department. With patient care paper documents declining and hunks of scanning hardware sitting around salivating for paper, look for paper elsewhere outside of patient care. First, I would take any work away from patient care staff either working on the patient floors or in any of the ambulatory settings. So how long do all of you wait for your clinics to add a document to the EHR? Do some of the papers never get scanned? How often do we submit copies of records to payers, attorneys, and patients only to find out that we've not given them all the documents because something didn't get scanned? Is there a risk there? You betcha. And the HI team, HIM team, will scan more accurately and consistently. So another factor we need to consider is last month's mandate to share medical records with patients electronically free of charge. But let's put that aside. It's just downright embarrassing to give a patient a copy of their record that has less documentation in it than what their attorney or payer receive. So my recommendation is to centralize scanning in HIM where the processes are fine-tuned and staffed on-site six or seven days a week to ensure timely scanning for patient care purposes. Now, let's not just focus scanning on our ambulatory sites. And let's not just focus it on patient care. The need for defining document types for easy retrieval exists elsewhere. It exists in finance, contract management, human resources, compliance, and risk management, and a lot of other departments. Every department has paper files it retains for designated periods, but often we will find that compliance with retention policies is lacking. That's where we come in. When we're reviewing their documents, we will make decisions consistent with the organization's retention policies, while at the same time, we'll be helping these departments define their document types, their document trees, and comply with the required retention periods. Will that make risk management happy? Yes, sir, it will. Then take on scanning for these other departments. Scanning for other departments does at least four things for HIM. It uses your staff and justifies keeping your staffing levels while at the same time reducing the need for staff in other departments, too bad, where you've assumed responsibility for their scanning. 
it leverages your scanning capital that the organization has already invested in. It identifies you as the information governor for the organization. And it eliminates file cabinets, taking up floor space that can be used for patient care or other purposes, or better yet, reduces the space requirements for the departments you serve and will reduce space needs make your CFO happy? Yes, and that's what we're going for. So take a look at my article that was posted last week in ICD-10 Monitor and also picked up by AHIMA and their daily email. And if Chuck wishes to invite me back, we can talk more about advancing our visibility, leveraging our skills, promoting data integrity, and last but not least, keeping our CFO happy. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rose. I think I can safely say that Chuck will invite you back. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the former AHIMA CEO and president. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Rose, I can safely say we do want to have you back. Coming up next, our lead story on how to get a handle on errata. It's very important. This is Talk in Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic constant change is now the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In-person conferences are pretty much out, yet it's as important as ever to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now you can get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor educational webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit the portal page at ICD University for more details and to sign up for a complimentary three-day trial. Reporting our lead story this morning on the 2021 CPT Errata and Technical Corrections is nationally recognized auditor and coder, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. What's going on? Good morning, and thank you, Chuck. So on March 9th, AMA CPT posted their editorial corrections, or what CPT calls their errata. These corrections are retroactive to January 1st, 2021. So let's start with time when leveling a visit. CPT notes the following will not be included when t- in time spent on a daily encounter the performance of other services that are separately reported, travel, and teaching that is general and not limited to the discussion that is required for the management of a specific patient. So what that could mean is when a general discussion of a healthy diet and lifestyle are offered to all patients as a routine standard of conversation and general advice, this would not be included in the time component of a visit. However, if the patient's encounter is for obesity counseling prior to planned gastric surgery, for example, offered by maybe a registered dietitian or a nutritionist, contributing to the management of the patient under the physician's supervision, that time may be counted. So when, so when that provider bills for testing that is interpreted or reviewed on the same date, that's what they call services separately reported. The errata updated this guideline to clarify that Tests that do not require separate interpretation, so results only, and are analyzed as part of the medical decision-making, do not count as an independent interpretation. That's under Category 2 under moderate or high-risk data. But it may be counted as ordered or reviewed for selecting a medical decision-making under Category 1. 
This means that certain point-of-care lab or testing services ordered that do not contain physician work value can be counted under data points under the medical decision-making table. Please note that pulse oximetry is still not counted. An example would be a wife calls about a complaint that her husband, a known patient, is having blood pressure reads and episodes of confusion. The provider orders a test and tells the wife to make an appointment for her husband three days following the completion of the test. The test is reviewed at that encounter. You may count that review of the test at that appointment because it was not counted at a previous face-to-face visit. A routine lab is ordered at a preventative medicine visit, such as an annual well visit. The lab comes back as normal, but is reviewed with the patient at a subsequent office encounter. No credit is given under the data points because ordering labs as part of a preventative visit is not contributory towards the medical decision-making of a problem-oriented visit. But the same patient, as the labs come back abnormal for, let's say, high cholesterol, and the patient was scheduled to return for an established patient visit to discuss treatment options, such as maybe a new prescription, that data point may not be counted, but the risk management for the new prescription would be part of the medical decision-making as possible moderate level. Now, problems addressed at the encounter. One element in use in selecting a level of office or other outpatient service is the number and complexity of the problems that are addressed at the encounter. Now, remember the final diagnosis for this decision does not in and of itself determine the complexity or risk to a patient. The errata clarified the term risk as it relates to all aspects of medical decision-making. The term risk as used in definitions relates to the risk from the condition, while condition and risk management may often correlate, the risk from the condition is distinct from the risk of management. Keep in mind that CPT uses risk in both the number of complexity problems addressed and the risk of complication of morbidity and mortality. When risk is discussed as part of the presenting problem, that's considered under problems addressed and not under the risk of complication of morbidity and mortality category. As it uh, states in the guidance, do not confuse the two. Data definitions, unique tests and unique sources were clarified. A unique test is defined by CPT code or CPT code set. So when multiple results of the same unique test, so let's say a basic metabolic panel, are compared during an ENM service, counted as one unique test. Tests that have overlapping elements are also not unique, even if they are identified with one distinct CPT code. For example, would be a CBC with differential would incorporate the set of hemoglobin, the CBC without differential, and platelet count. Also, a unique source, so if you're reviewing an outside source, this is defined as a physician or qualified healthcare professional in a distinct group or different specialty or subspecialty or a unique uh, entity. So when a review of records, and no count limit, it's just one point, from any unique source counts, that would be one element towards medical decision-making. Now, per the errata, discussion, this was a new um, ad, and this was discussion. This requires an interactive exchange, and this was under Category 3, and so there was some incorrect coding or upcoding, I should say, by pulling that Category 3. What uh, the errata said was that the exchange must be a direct and not through intermediaries, so not through clinical staff or trainees. Sending chart notes or written exchanges that are within progress notes, that does not qualify as an interactive exchange. The discussion does not need to be on the same date as the encounter, but it's, encountered, it's counted only once and only when it's used in the decision-making of the encounter. It may be asynchronous, uh, does not need to be in person, but it must be initiated and completed within a short period of time, within a day or two. Be careful with that because that means you'd have to leave the record open. So for best practices, I would have that on the same date. Discussion, uh, getting discussion of management or test interpretation be sure that the reporting physician or qualified healthcare professional, the NPRPA, is taking part in that discussion. 
The discussion can be through electric means, so telephone or portal, but it must be an interactive discussion that occurs within a short period of time. So make sure that is a part of your practice. Then there's also a category two, the clarification of using a translator. Remember, this does not count for an independent historian since the patient is still giving a history. However, if using time to level your visit, include the extra time it took to use a translator, and you may have that factored in as far as the time-based code. And last, if you discuss a test or diagnostic with a patient and or family, so let's say a CT scheme with, co with contrast, and then decide after further discussion with the family to forego the test, you may get credit. The note must clearly indicate the test was considered, but at this time was not necessary or due to risk of the patient, it may needed to be postponed. As the, as the medical record clearly states after physician assessment, this was considered, then you can get credit. Just a reminder though, that consideration of the test as was, that was patient requested only with no workup by the physician is not considered part of the medical decision-making. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was nice to recognize physician auditor and coder, Terry Fletcher. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Enthusiasts. It's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's up? Well, last week, Shannon DeConda bemoaned the fact that we have lost the story of the encounter. She postulated that the primary impetus for the loss of narrative in the electronic environment was convenience. I agree that convenience is compelling, but if providers are doing it right, I'm not even convinced that copy and paste is convenient and time-saving. We need to stop thinking of it as copy and pasting and have a paradigm shift to consider it copy and editing. If a provider plunks down an assessment and plan into today's note, they should be reading it with a fine-toothed comb to make sure that it is all accurately reflecting the encounter today. It is labor-intensive to edit. Here are a few tips, but you should see my article in ICD-10 Monitor next week for more. I often see the entire HPI paragraph copied into every daily progress note, and then they type out a few sentences about how the patient is doing today. If your provider insists on this behavior, have them flip the sequence so the new information is atop the note. Realistically, if I want to know what happened in the HPI, I could just go to the H&P. I personally hate the 12 days of Christmas assessment and plan list. I don't want to know what happened over the course of the last week. I want to know what is happening today, or at least since the patient was last documented on. If the provider is married to this format, have them bold new information so the reader can easily and quickly identify it. More is not better. Concise, understandable, and actionable is better. Do they like reading other people's copy and paste? If not, remind them that their copy and paste is someone else's. I hate reading other people's copy and paste. Differential diagnoses are good to let other caregivers know what the practitioner is thinking, but that section should be dynamic. If a diagnosis is ruled out, eliminate it from the list. If a definitive diagnosis has been determined, the differential diagnosis list has served its purpose and should be retired. The provider is being paid the big bucks to think, analyze, synthesize. They should demonstrate that in their documentation. They should detail what they are basing their diagnosis on, but it does not necessarily have to appear every day. Explaining their criteria 
for diagnosing severe protein calorie malnutrition is crucial once at diagnosis. They do not need to repeat the BMI, muscle wasting, weight loss every day. It would be appropriate to document the treatment daily as long as it is accurate today. Problem lists or assessment plans should not include every condition or surgery the patient has ever had. If it isn't relevant to why they are here now, it shouldn't be on the list. There is no extra credit for volume. When temporal words are copy and pasted, they completely disrupt the integrity of the story. Did that happen yesterday or was it four days ago and it has been copy and pasted without edit for three days? The discharge summary should be a summary of the important events and a list of all the important diagnoses. A slipshod discharge summary can wreak havoc with the DRG and risk adjustment. The providers need feedback. They don't realize anyone else reads their documentation or cares what they write, but we do. They won't change their behavior unless they know they need to. Back to you, Chuck. Wow. Thanks, Erica, very much. That was an excellent talkback segment. And that is going to be a wrap for our 460th live edition Talked In Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Terry Fletcher, Tim Powell, Stanley Nockerson, and as always, thank you to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor at Talked In Tuesday. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.